This is The Finch. is the chance for mutation. Like I mentioned before, the first severe acute respiratory syndrome virus uh, um, did end up having mutations at, during the outbreak. Like in some cases, they believe those made the virus uh, even more compatible with the, uh, the human body. And so I, I would not rule out seeing that here. This is episode five. We're your hosts, Alex and Will. This isn't your typical podcast. In your typical podcast, you'd probably hear one or two perspectives, right, Will? Right. But we're giving you 16. You're going to be hearing from leading epidemiologists, sociologists, psychologists, historians, philosophers, economists, researchers, and the mayor. We dissect complex issues with a multidisciplinary approach. This is The Finch. So that makes us quite comfortable that uh, we now can make this um, a vaccine for COVID-19. Also, report today that a vaccine candidate has begun the phase one clinical trial. This is one of the fastest vaccine development launches in history. The good news is we did it more quickly than we've ever done it. The sobering news is that it's not ready for prime time for what we're going through now. In terms of vaccines, the U.S. has moved at a pace we have never seen before. Still, it's going to be at least a year to a year and a half. A group of scientists at the U.K.'s Oxford University says a vaccine could be closer than has been predicted. Maybe even ready this year. On this episode of The Finch... We enter the lab. Thank you for taking the time to join us, Dr. Pugin. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role as a director of the Center for Drug Discovery and what research is being conducted at the Center and the College of Pharmacy in relation to the coronavirus? Sure. Uh, well, uh, I'm for, uh, first and foremost an associate professor on faculty of the Pharmaceutical Biomedical Sciences Department here in the College of Pharmacy. And I'm also wear another hat for the uh, head of the Center for Drug Discovery. Um, the Center for Drug Discovery's primary purpose is really to serve as a portal for therapeutic development, um, really against anything here at Georgia. We want to be kind of the interface between companies seeking drug discovery support from our faculty here at the University of Georgia to also help in our own faculty kind of translate their basic science accomplishments into more uh, translatable. Uh, not therapeutics. So there's one, you know, there's, we talk about science, we talk about, you know, creating understanding nature and understanding the scientific problems, understanding how these diseases operate. And then of course, we always try to shift that knowledge or leverage that knowledge in order to develop new therapeutics to combat those kind of viruses or disease states. And so we kind of help out with that. How have your labs been, or other UGA labs been, collaborating with other entities such as the CDC? Sure, we've been a lot of, uh, quite a few of our labs, and I didn't fully address the question before. Uh, we have right now in the College of Pharmacy, we have three laboratories operating on um, COVID-19 pro- uh, projects specifically. Um, David Chu and Uma Singh are working on scanning their nucleoside analog libraries. Uh, these are things that look like RNA, but aren't quite RNA. 
and they can serve as inhibitors to um, basically stop the virus from being able to replicate its own genome. So they have that project going on. Um, Eva Strouch is partnering with biotech companies to take her computational approach to developing antigens um, for vaccines for use against um, COVID-19. And we're actually working with her on one of those projects. Um, are trying to leverage our Kremer and Congo hemorrhagic fever vaccine platform in order to make it a vaccine that protects not only against CCHF, but also COVID-19. Now, in addition to that, my lab is also working on some small molecule drug-like leads that uh, are targeting one of the viral proteases. Uh, we were, I was part of a group in, at the University of Illinois back in 2008 that was able to show that these compounds were very effective at stymie um, severe acute respiratory syndrome coronaviruses replication. So that kind of gives you kind of an overview. Can you talk a little bit about how you are repurposing that existing Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever vaccine and sort of the process that goes behind that? Sure. So um, a lot of vaccines nowadays, uh, a lot of people, when they think about vaccines, they think about back to the 50s and 60s where you just took a virus and you somehow chemically inhibited or killed it, essentially, and then put it into somebody. Those types of vaccines only work for a subset of viruses. Most vaccine approaches nowadays, like the ones Johnson Johnson's using or Mondero, which was also in the news, is using, they're using different uh, viral platforms to express certain um, proteins of the virus. And they want to do that in order to get those uh, proteins in a state that they would most mimic what they would look like in nature. And so a lot of those approaches look like that. And so our approach is similar to that. We've developed over the years to target Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, a what we call viral replicant particle. And that viral replicant particle can also express other viral proteins. And so we're looking at that platform as a strategy to express antigens of COVID-19 in order to provide an immune response against that and protection. And so it's kind of a, um, a different platform. Some of the advantages to our platform is, is that uh, it would protect not only against CCHF, which the Department of the Army and other um, public entities are interested in, because that's an emerging disease, but it would also kind of protect against COVID-19 is our, our hope. So you kind of get two protection, get protection against two viruses versus just one. Much of your work focuses on a form of virus called niroviruses. Despite popularization of the term, coronaviruses like niroviruses are just a type of virus instead of um, a specific virus itself. Can you talk to us a little about what coronaviruses are and how this COVID-19 virus fits into the picture? Sure. So uh, coronaviruses are a subset of what we call positive-stranded RNA viruses. So what happens when a virus infects a cell is that it injects a piece of RNA, one continuous strand of RNA into the cell. And then the cell uh, machinery translates that into what we call a viral polypeptide. And then proteases like the one I talked about earlier, cleave that up into individual proteins, then allow those, then it allows for the virus to replicate. So that's kind of the, when we talk about coronaviruses, those are kind of the coronaviruses we're looking at. And you know, right now, COVID-19 is the seventh human coronavirus that has been found. So 
in the case of everybody's familiar with severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus. That really wasn't actually the first human coronavirus found. That was just the one first one that was um, gave provided a, a lethal outcome. So there's other coronaviruses like NL63 um, that cause the common cold in the United States. But when you talk about coronaviruses, like you said, it's kind of one large family. So there's different um, parts of the coronavirus family. Like the NL63 virus I just mentioned is actually a different subtype of coronavirus than severe acute respiratory syndrome subviruses, or even the Middle East respiratory syndrome viruses. So just because everything's a coronavirus doesn't mean that all coronaviruses are equal in their you know, threat to human health. In the case, it seems that these NL63 viruses that give the common cold you know, are, don't really have much of a fatality rate associated with them, but there's a different subclass that does. And unfortunately, the COVID-19 virus, which is actually SARS-CoV-2, is a part of that subfamily that does seem to give a high mortality rate upon infection. Do we know why this uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, the one that's causing this coronavirus pandemic, is more lethal than those that cause the common cold? Are there any particular mutations that we can pinpoint to as to why it causes asymptomatic carriers to such a high extent and why we're seeing the death toll that we're seeing? Uh, nobody really has a lot of inf hard information on that right now. You know, you can easily take two sequences, like you suggest, and look at them together, but there are so many different mutations that occur that you're probably not going to find one mutation in one place that's going to do that, and that's not really the case here with SARS-CoV-2. Um, between the two viruses, there's 83% sequence identity. So 83% of the virus seems to be, you know, as an aggregate is the same. Now, what allows, you know, in the two types of path, um, pathology you've seen is that with the original one that back in 2003, people who got that seemed to run fevers rather rapidly early on. And that, and they ran fevers before they were truly um, uh, contagious. And so that's what allowed for the quarantine of the 2003 outbreak. And as you mentioned, with the new one, it seems that they're being contagious before they run a fever, which would suggest that the body is not quite understanding that an infection is going on or is, isn't ramping up its defense mechanisms like running a fever as quickly against this virus as it did with the other ones. So you, it's kind of a, a mixed bag, whereas the first one in 2003, you had, it, it was more fatal, likely solicited the body's immune system a more rap, uh, a more uh, impactful response early on, so we were able to contain it, and this one, it's kind of more found the sweet spot where it doesn't seem to trigger the immune system as quickly or the immune system doesn't ramp up as quickly. So you don't develop symptoms before you're contagious. And, you know, my lab, we're looking into one of the proteases that uh, deals with the immune suppression mechanism. But in honesty, there's probably about three or four proteins in these viruses that are designed to suppress the host immune system. And we just don't know right now. Uh, if they're, are they acting the same way? Are they acting differently between those two viruses? You know, much less are they acting differently versus the common cold NL63 associated virus versus this one. And so that's kind of where all the science is going on right now. I mean, in literature, you know, just to give you a frame of where the research is right now, COVID-19, you know, the sequence for the virus only really became widely disseminated around January. 
And by the time it takes, you know, labs, labs are just now doing that kind of research. And it still takes three to four weeks to even try to get the material published. So like from our early studies, we have a paper in review right now, and we're waiting back any day now to that whether it's going to be accepted by peer review. So you're probably going to get a bunch, we're probably going to get a bunch of information about some of those questions um, later, probably in the mid to late summer about what's going on. What are some of the ways that a virus can suppress the immune system? Some of the ways, like I'll, t I'll give you a little insight of the way we're looking, and this is the reason that I've kept up with coronaviruses over the years, and similar to what's similar between them and the neuroviruses, is that this protease that I talked about earlier, it goes in and it cuts off or reverses kind of a routing tags in the cell. And those routing tags are put on there to signal, hey, it's time for the immune system to step up and ramp up because we have a viral infection. What the protease is essentially doing is squelching that response by silencing those signaling mechanisms so that the cell doesn't understand that it's being infected. And that kind of is a corollary to the wider body. The body doesn't understand that what's going on. And so that's usually any, this virus has a protease that does that. The narrow viruses, which I also work on, have a different class, but a protease that does the same thing. And so we've been investigating, you know, how does that protease exactly do what you mentioned? How does it suppress the immune system? What parts of the cell is it really targeting? And is there any way we can um, support those parts of the cell so that you get a proper immune response? Many viruses, including influenza viruses, have a tendency to disproportionately affect those with compromised immune systems, including elderly patients and infants. While young children and adolescents and young adults are not immune to this virus, the rate of infection has a strong correlation with higher susceptibility as age increases. Many have attributed this to a phenomenon known as a cytokine storm. What is a cytokine storm and how do immune responses determine varying levels of symptoms and outcomes? There's some, there's some information on, on that question in the science. In this case, what a cytokine storm is, um, that's fairly well documented. When cytokines are your signaling molecules or molecules that are highlighted as biomarkers that tell you that and, um, your immune response is taking hold and, and doing its job. Uh, when we talk about cytokine storm, what they're talking about is where a virus, we'll talk about maybe a CCHF virus for a second. In the case of CCHF, it has a protease called a viral variant tumor domain protease, and it does that same immune suppression that the PL-PRO from coronavirus does. And when you get infected with CCHF, you go for, um, symptoms don't really develop for you for seven to eight days. But before that, the virus has been replicating and your immune suppression has been, so that your immune system doesn't respond. Then all of a sudden, your, your immune system gets tipped off of like, wow, I've got this huge viral infection going on. And then the, your immune system overreacts because it hadn't been operating for the last couple of days. And when we're talking about cytokine storm and the consequences of that, that's kind of what they're focused on. And some of the drugs that are currently being tested right now are aimed at trying to uh, short circuit some of the deleterious effects of the immune system over responding to the virus. Recent studies have shown that um, a lot of infected individuals actually are way more contagious in their uh, pre-symptomatic state. Can you sort of uh, describe why this may be happening and also 
why this uh, pre-symptomatic state is problematic for uh, the spread of the disease. Yeah, this kind of touches on my, a uh, little bit on the previous answers that in this case, this virus seems to have found that spot where it can replicate and causes damage, but not quite enough damage early on to invoke symptoms. And what that means is that you have this virus replicating, people have it, and they can go and contact things and spread the virus without really knowing they have it. Um, you know, they, a, lot, a lot of virologists will look at lots of different viruses that have done what coronaviruses have done. So essentially, we've had a virus that has circulated in, likely in animals, it's zoonotic in nature, and it crossed over to humans. A lot of times the initial crossover events are accompanied by um, a high mortality rate because the virus hasn't gotten used to its host. It's not in the um, evolutionarily wise, it's not to the advantage of the virus to kill the host because the host is the one that's allowing it to replicate and spread. So what you, you sometimes see, and this happened in the original coronavirus outbreak, is that the virus will mutate once it's crossed over into humans in order to uh, replicate more efficiently. And sometimes that means, you know, lower fatality rates. And so what we've kind of seen here with SARS-2, and like I said, it's 83% similar to the original. This seems to kind of follow that thought, school of thought that, well, you had the coronavirus first came over in 2003, maybe it was a little too potent, didn't really work out with the human immune system too well. And so we were able to quickly contain it. But the next wave that came over was a virus that didn't make the immune system over respond too quickly. And so thus it's evolutionary as we see today, it can spread a lot more efficiently because we can't track it really. We can't, uh, we only can track it through testing. We can't say, hey, you got a fever, you can't come in because we know that people without fevers are being able to spread this. Uh, can you elaborate on how uh, zoonotic diseases spread from animals to humans? Sure. Um, zoonotic, it's usually close proximity with animals, um, you know, over a particular amount of time. You know, it's the same thing with Ebola, right? You know, will we ever rid the world of Ebola? It'd be very difficult to imagine that right now. And the reason for that is that Ebola infects animals. And unless you went into the jungle and you inoculated every animal, you know, basically in the, the continent of Africa, you're still going to get situations where people go into the wilderness, interact with those animals, and contract, um, and contract Ebola. Same kind of thing here with these coronaviruses. There seems to be, you know, the uh, appearance of this uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus would seem to suggest that there's this pool of bat-like coronaviruses out there circulating among bats or other animals, and that they're just kind of on the tipping point of being able to cross over into humans. The real key for being able to cross over humans for the coronavirus is that the, the coronavirus can interact with the ACE2 receptor on human cells. That's really the, the make or break. That's why mice can't get infected with coronavirus because they don't have the right ACE2 receptor in order to be compatible with the virus. And other viruses like MERS coronavirus actually use a completely different receptor than ACE2. And so, and they're transmitted between camels and humans quite often. So in the case of this virus, it just seems for, and, and people haven't quite gotten down to the bottom of it yet, of why the virus seems to have evolved to be able to interact with human, uh, human uh, ACE2 
It could be because they view that as a new host, or it could be that the virus has been evolving against the bat or a certain species of bat that has a similar ACE2 receptor than we do, and we're just unfortunately collateral damage in that evolutionary process of the of the coronavirus. Can you talk about uh, what these receptors are and if there's any discussion about just inhibiting them so that connection can't be made between the virus and the epithelial cells? Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, it's the ACE2 receptor. Uh, it's, um, you know, pretty probably an, an attention to um, esterase receptor. And, you know, they are looking at developing antibodies that potentially block those receptors so then the virus can't interact with them. When you're looking at antiviral development, that is definitely one of the mechanisms you seek to inhibit is what they call the developed intra-inhibitors. Inhibitors, small molecules or antibodies that prevent the virus from being able to enter the cells. Um, that's used very successfully in HIV is one of the three drugs that make up the cocktails for that virus. And we would probably see something like that coming out with the coronavirus here. But whenever we're talking drug development, it kind of goes in phases. You know, right now, the drugs that are being tested are things that were developed for other viruses that just kind of have a broad spectrum benefit. benefit. They're not specific for the coronavirus, per se. Um, you know, such as, you know, they might have been developed for Ebola, but, you know, they didn't finish developing for Ebola because the vaccine came along, and this is a new threat, and they've gone and tested some of those drugs. You know, you have the uh, classes of drugs that... Like um, I mentioned before, David Chu's lab works on nucleoside inhibitors. Those are always popular because um, all, all viruses need to regenerate their genome. And so they have to use nucleotides. And, you know, like in the case of HIV, AZT was a nucleotide inhibitor. That was the first drug for HIV. And the reason for that is because people have large chemical libraries of these. And when a new virus like this comes along, they just screen that chemical library. And usually they can find a hit uh, or two that work against that virus's protease. And so those are usually the next wave of drugs that are developed. And you also have a wave that's also out there where we mentioned the cytokine storm earlier, drugs that are targeting the host immune system and trying to keep it in check for not overreacting. Usually it will take, probably probably won't see any really purpose-built coronavirus um, drugs, probably for at least a year. You know, because a lot of those projects were just in their early infancy stages. And, you know, there just wasn't a lot of interest and money to fund development of those after the SARS outbreak was contained. And so a lot of leads were developed, but they were largely abandoned, not because they weren't any good. It was just that, well, you know, it takes a couple billion dollars to develop the next drug. Why am I going to spend a couple billion dollars for a disease that no longer exists? And so that's kind of why you see these, the lag times and the way you're seeing these drugs kind of roll out. As you mentioned, uh, vaccine and drug development both have multiple stages that they have to go through. And even the most optimistic development timelines place a vaccine or drug about a year in the future. In the meantime, uh, certain drugs are being fast-tracked or even other drugs are being recommended. One of these drugs that have been recommended without trial is chloroquine, which has been hailed by the president and several health officials, but had disastrous consequences in a recent clinical trial. I believe that the control group had a mortality rate of around 14%, while the chloroquine group had mortality rate of 28%. What are your thoughts on this anti-malarial and do you have any precaution, precautionary words for 
fast tracking and recommending these drugs? Well, yeah, I mean, chloroquine, we could go on for hours talking about the ins and outs of chloroquine. I, the bottom line is there is no scientific evidence that it's effective in clinical use against COVID-19. You know, where, why was it suggested is because um, uh, chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, any of those, they've shown in cells to be able to have an antiviral effect against several different viruses. The thing is, is that every time, and this was even tested on Ebola, but whenever they go into the clinic, it doesn't show any beneficial effects. And so it's a big difference from showing antiviral effects in cells to showing it in a complex organism of the human body. And, you know, it's, you know, like in the case of chloroquine, all of us, you know, are like everybody else, are, are hopeful that maybe one of these drugs will work against, you know, COVID-19. And that's why they're doing these clinical tests. But, you know, to say that you, a person should be taking this drug is um, very, you know, very dangerous because uh, as you mentioned, uh, there's, even though it's been around for, you know, almost half, you know, half a century, it doesn't mean that it doesn't come with side effects. You know, cardiac side effects, I think they pose in that one story, uh, in that one study. And, um, you know, it's just dangerous to take off-label things for things that just haven't been tested against. You know, the only thing that's been, you know, in the case of chloroquine, there's a small French study that said it might be beneficial, but that French study didn't have enough people in the study to make it statistically relevant. And that statistical relevance is really important because right now, and, and I'm sure it has been the case across the United States, you know, doctors, physicians that have patients with this disease are really up against the wall. They have, they don't really have anything to offer the patient. So, and some of these doctors have, you know, prescribed hydroxychloroquine to some of their patients, even though it hasn't been, you know, proven to have any efficacy. And that's a very highly dangerous practice. Um, you know, there's another kind of corollary with my own research with CCHF, you know, about two, almost two decades ago, you know, they heralded ribavirin as a way to cure CCHF because ribavirin is seen as a broad spectrum antiviral. And, you know, they just give these to these people and it was never clinically diagnosed. I mean, clinically proven to work. And, you know, it really, you know, they ran several studies on it and they showed that there was no efficacy to it whatsoever. But that still hasn't stopped some physicians prescribing it because they get into this mindset of, well, I need to give you something. And this is my best guess of what might work, but it can be a highly dangerous practice, you know, prescribing drugs off label because of the side effects that come with them. And so, yeah, for the hydroxychloroquine, it's, you know, unfortunate story that we, you know, again, against cells shows antiviral effects like it has done against uh, coronavirus before uh, the SARS, uh, original SARS coronavirus, Ebola, and a bunch of other viruses. But again, we just haven't seen any evidence in clinical trials that it actually works in a patient kind of setting. A drug that's shown some more promise, uh, remdesivir, which is an antiviral medication developed by Gilead Sciences, has resulted in initial success with clinical trials. What do drugs like these target, and are you hopeful that they can be used in fighting uh, COVID-19? Sure. Uh, remdesivir is one of those that I kind of mentioned a little earlier about nucleotide analogs. So remdesivir is a nucleoside analog. It was originally developed for use of against Ebola, 
but it never uh, met the uh, clinical benchmarks they wanted to show success against that virus. So they're trying to retool it uh, and use it against the COVID-19. And as I mentioned before, you know, all viruses usually have some sort of a polymerase, and so they all have to use nucleotide analogs. So, you know, it would be possible that Trier could be, tar- you know, effectively working on that mechanism. You know, it's a lot better shot that that type of drug is going to work because there's a really what we call a mode of action. We know how that drug works. It inhibits the viral protease. In the case of like um, chloroquine, no one's even sure how it works or how it gives rise to its antiviral effects. And that's one of the things that also has halted that use of that particular drug. So remdesivir has, you know, they know how it works. The question is, is does that drug mesh well with the polymerase of COVID-19, you know, better than it did with the Ebola one? And so that is kind of one of those first drugs. It wasn't, again, purposely built for COVID-19 or developed for COVID-19 or coronaviruses. But it falls into that category of a broad spectrum antiviral, or is it broad spectrum as you can kind of get for antivirals? So it's, you know, everyone's has a little more guarded hope for that one, I think, than, uh, you know, some of the others that are out there. Turning to the development of drugs itself, what is high throughput screening and how does it work? And can you talk about the use of high throughput screening and drug discovery, particularly as it relates to SARS CoV 2? So high throughput screening is really um, a way of, uh, you know, back before, around before the early 80s and before that, drug discovery really uh, le- um, hinged on um, either rationally modifying maybe um, a natural product or chemical that was found to have some beneficial uh, qualities to it, to one where we take a large library, you know, commercial companies have million compound libraries and they screen these million compounds for compounds that show beneficial effects. That if we do target-based screening, like in the case we've done with protease in the past, we screen this library and see if any of them inhibit the protease. And if they do, then we test them against the virus. Or you can just take the virus itself and screen them against these chemical libraries to look for a chemical that is drug-like and uh, could be used as what we call a lead compound for further development to, uh, to generate a drug. You know, a good example in this particular case for COVID-19 would be, um, you know, if you, as I mentioned before, David Chu has a long history of generating nucleoside analogs, and he probably has a library of several hundred of them. And so in this particular case, he would just screen those several hundred compounds against the virus to see if any of those compounds um, had antiviral effect. And that could be his lead compound, which then he would be able to take and further modify to improve its potency. And, you know, the same thing for us in our case, we have a protease we target. So we'd look at, you know, chemical compounds that could inhibit that protease and then build upon it. So that's kind of how high throughput screening works and what we call modern kind of modern drug discovery techniques. An interesting thing about this uh, SARS-CoV-2 outbreak is that it's been one of the first times AI and just computer science has been used and researched uh, effectively. Can you talk about how computers or just automation may be useful to this process of screening? Yeah, sure. So like I mentioned before, you know, drug companies have usually have over a million compounds in their library. But sometimes it would be prohibitively expensive and time intensive to perhaps screen all million compounds. And so they can use um, what we call would call automated docking techniques. Uh, We call it we kind of 
use the word in silico. They can do in silico screening against those million compounds. And then the computer can kind of tell them which compounds are more likely to be successful. And so that can really speed up the screening timeline. And then there's a lot of computational tools out there that will also help you improve and optimize or you know, increase the potency of your drug. And that's really where the interface of you know, AI and drug discovery really come into play is in those processes. Given that you said that there's still no existing drug on the markets that is uh, proven to be really effective, the Food and Drug Administration Commissioner recently approved the use of convalescent plasma from recovered patients as a potential treatment for hospitalized COVID-19 cases. Uh, why is plasma used and how does it successfully inhibit the virus or at least aid the immune system in inhibiting the virus? And do you think this approach could work in treating this virus? Right. Um, I don't know too much in depth in the in, you know, all the intricacies of plasma, but usually it's generally uh, focused around getting antibodies from people that have successfully fought off the virus into people that have it. Um, you know that whether that will be successful or not largely hinges on whether the antibodies somebody develops when they recover from the virus are really the main factor in their recovery, and that's still an open scientific question right now. And so that's why, you know, it's, it definitely doesn't hurt to do that technique, but no one knows if it's, if it's effective yet, because we haven't had a lot of tests to show that. Um, there's kind of generally two types of antibodies, which we talk about. Uh, it, we talk about when it comes to infections, we call, talk about neutralizing antibodies and non-neutralizing antibodies. Historically, um, antivirals, when it comes to antibodies, have been great if they're neutralizing, because then they bind to the virus and really um, clump the virus and help it, uh, the immune system identify it and get rid of it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that every virus that you infect, you generalize, neutralize the antibodies to that virus. And so that's kind of where the science in that realm is kind of still uh, in the early phases of understanding is, are we going to be able to find an antibody that does have that neutralizing effect? Do we find, does, is that neutralized antibody generated in people that recover so that the plasma can be used? Those are all, all open questions. I mean, there's definitely been cases of success in using those kind of approaches, and that's why people try them. But it's kind of a, you know, you, you, not every solution fits every problem. And so that's why everybody with COVID-19 is trying all these different approaches, like the plasma approach, the nucleotide analog approach, because there's some track record of success using these, but we don't know which one's going to be successful yet against this virus. Perhaps we should have covered this sooner, but can you briefly just talk about how antibodies work for those that maybe don't know? Because I don't think vaccines have ever been talked about uh, on such a broad scale on a daily basis uh, as they are right now. And I feel like a lot of people still don't completely understand how a vaccine would work for this disease. Yeah. So, you know, if, if, it's, if your response is what we call humoral response, which is what antibody response is, then you're what happens is you have a type of cells of B, uh, called B cells that uh, produce antibodies. And they do this through rearrangement of the DNA to produce different antibodies with different properties. And what happens in an infection is that B cells that produce antibodies that do help with the infection are technically usually selected for the body. And so you get these antibodies produced and then they'll bind to, in a more traditional sense, bind to the pro a virus. And then it kind of clumps the virus together. And then part of the antibody is also a signal to the immune system 
to come over here and investigate this binded mass of antibodies and viruses that we have, and then the then the immune system clears that from um, the bloodstream. So kind of the target here, when we look at um, vaccine, these vaccine candidates, those are some of the, tech, the traits that they're looking for in the vaccines. You know, if they have one, I think I heard recently that, you know, Emory was looking for, you know, some patients for um, a candidate screen where they're going to inject some viral proteins into them and see what the response was. And that was what they're doing is they're trying to see is if I inject this viral protein into you, that's not infectious, are you going to get an immune response that looks like a good enough immune response to build protection? And so that's what all these virus candidates are going, vaccine candidates are going through. You know, they're, you know, when you're looking at, you have to answer those questions. Is the, is this vaccine candidate going to get, elicit an immune response that's going to be protective? How long will that protection last? You know, and, and that's why we're talking, you know, usually vaccines are developed over a 10-year time frame. And here we're trying to develop it within a year, year and a half. And so there's not even a, a, a permanent understanding about how long immunity lasts. Say you're a recovered patient from COVID-19. Do you have immunity against the virus for two months, four months, a year, 10 years? Nobody knows that yet. The last thing we want to do is field a vaccine that only protects you for two weeks because that's, you know, the response it got. And so that's kind of when we talk about, you know, uh, time in a year, it's not like scientists like me are all over the place and biotech companies are just like saying, oh, we'll get to that next week. It's these things take time. You know, you can't rush a 30 day trial on somebody in, in two days because you won't get the information you need to make an effective vaccine. And that's really what all these, you know, you know, the time frame, I don't think anybody thinks right now that the time frame for getting a therapeutic or virus or a vaccine on the market is anything to do with regulatory red tape. Everybody's been very amenable. Everybody understands what the requirements are and everybody's trying their hardest to get something out there as quick as they can, uh, but safely as they can. On the subject of the duration of immunity, one of the scarier things is that in South Korea, there were around 200 recovered patients that uh, later retested positive. While there's a possibility that this could be due to um, unreliable testing or trace amounts in the bloodstream, is there a possibility of one, the virus lying dormant for periods of time and then resurfacing later, um, or just a mutation in the virus itself? Um, I think I think at this point, you know, with the Korea study, and I remember reading some about it a few days ago. I, I think in the cases like that, you know, they found that yeah, the virus was around, but the people weren't infectious, which kind of lead drove more to the point really of the remnant component because the tests, all the tests, you know, when we say we would test for this, all the tests aren't built the same way. They look for different things, and in tests, I believe they used they were looking for viral RNA. And those are what the early tests were designed for, is to look for viral RNA. And, you know, just because you have a viral piece of viral RNA floating around in your bloodstream doesn't mean that it's in a virus and the virus is an active virus. So I think there's, there's, doesn't, there's I think people are concerned about that possibility and, and justly so, but I don't think there's any evidence to support that this virus is kind of hanging out dormant somewhere and is going to reemerge. Um, you know, this virus doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, there's a lot of difference 
than the type of virus of this type of virus versus HIV. HIV, when you get it, uh, it actually integrates the viral DNA into your own DNA of your cells. So even though you can keep the viral tighter down, once your body seems stress, it will express that virus. This virus, coronaviruses are not that kind of virus. Um, you know, they don't seem to show any propensity to do that kind of activity. And so it really still appears that once you've defeated it, at least in the short term, then the likelihood is that you're not going to get it. Uh, but no one knows what that duration of protection is right now. There has been much debate as to whether or not this virus is uh, seasonal and could be endemic. Is this a trait that is uh, characteristic of coronaviruses? And do you think this is a possibility with this virus? Uh, there hasn't been enough research, I think, in coronaviruses to say that that is a true cycle. Um, as I mentioned before, we're dealing right now with a virus that has hit a native, a naive population. And so it's really going through its early stages of being a part of our lives, essentially. Uh, this virus is adapting to be a human pathogen. Uh, it hasn't done enough already to infect a lot of people. Um, you know, well, I, my guess is that uh, it will probably you'll eventually see some seasonal trends, but I'm not sure that will happen for a year or two off because the virus is right now, you know, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you guys have in the history books know about smallpox and American Indians, right? You know, smallpox at the American Indian population and just flew off because there's no immunity in that population. And that's kind of, you know, what we're facing here. New virus population has no immunity against it. You know, and it's going to flourish for quite a while until it gets kind of like the flu, where it probably just comes in waves, and then the flu is more seasonal for various factors. So I'm not ruling out that eventually it won't, it couldn't, seasons couldn't play a role in it. I just don't think that's going to happen in the short term here. In many places where social distancing guidelines are strictly followed by citizens of all demographics, including young people, um, a couple of the curves for the number of cases of coronavirus have begun to flatten and people are saying that we've almost rode out this first wave in some places. Other places are not so fortunate and they're still peaking or uh, their cases are still climbing. Um, with this, in some places such as Georgia, we are reopening businesses effective today and the following Monday. Can you talk about the possibility of a second resurgence of cases and a second spike? Well, I think, I think you know, I, in any kind of situation with, like I said, a virus, you first hit a naive population and you're only affecting, you know, even the best stats. You have to look how many cases there are. You're expecting a real small part of the population. So many of us are still naive to it. We haven't built any immunity. We never got it before. Um, so, you know, there's always going to be a risk for a second reemergence or more cases. Um, you know, when you open up things, you know, the real question with containing this at this point or what our tools are available are really testing and contact tracing. And so really, when you look at opening up the public, you know, you really have to contemplate whether you have enough resources to do those activities. You know, do you have enough resources that if everybody say everybody comes here to the University of Georgia, do we have enough resources in place? that if one of the students comes and says, hey, I'm sick and I got this COVID-19, do we have enough resources to take that person, test everybody who's been in contact with that person in a reasonable amount of time in order to control that uptick? 
And that's really, you know, a question that the public, you know, officials are really trying to weigh because of the best position to understand, you know, what resources are available to them and what they could or couldn't do in a case like that. You know, that's, that's really kind of more of a public health policy kind of thing because, you know, it would be great if, and these things will definitely accelerate things, say as uh, Remdesivir comes out and says, hey, you know, this works fantastic. You know, it's a drug we can use to treat. Well, then people will open up a little quicker because they know that if you get it, you at least have some therapeutic to rely on if you go to the hospital or something to control on it. Right now, our only controls against this virus that are available is through the contact tracing and, and robust testing. So, you know, from a public policy standpoint, that's really kind of what they're, those, those people making those decisions are weighing. Do I have those resources that if I open something up and somebody does get this, that we can contain that outbreak in that small section, or are we going to get this widespread New York kind of like affair if we do those kind of activities? There's lots of people, lots of expert opinions that have to kind of go into making those decisions. Speaking of New York, a recent antibody study there found that I believe around 14% of people in the entire state had COVID, COVID-19 at some point, and then in New York, New York City, that proportion was as high as 21%. Can you talk about these implications for herd immunity and how you could have had the virus without even knowing it? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people were really, you know, truly asymptomatic with this virus and they got it and they didn't, you know, they maybe had a sniffle or maybe a, a slight cough or something, but just chalked it up to allergy season, you know, because we're in the midst of allergy season too. Um, you know, those people that have immunity against it, that's fantastic. That's great. But, you know, for herd immunity to really, you know, be protective overall, the percentage really has to get up there. I mean, 20% definitely helps you better off as a population than having 1%. But you have to kind of keep in mind things like uh, measles, right? Measles is far more contagious than, than coronavirus, coronaviruses are. But, you know, if you have a drop, as we saw at some of the outbreaks over the years, if you have a drop in herd immunity in a certain area, you know, down, I think it was like down to the 80%, all of a sudden you start getting outbreaks. You know, so just to kind of give you a sample of what herd immunity looks like and what would have to be effective really for this to be effective against coronavirus, I think we need to have a lot more people have recovered from this virus to really lean on herd immunity as a, a plausible, you know, safety net for us. We've spoken about uh, measles and, and smallpox, but I think something we, something we haven't brought up yet is the 1918 uh, Spanish flu, which came in three waves. The second and third wave actually uh, had somewhat of a different genetic structure than the first wave, mm-hmm. resulting in some people being uh, infected twice. Do you think there's a possibility of a significant mutation here in this coronavirus? And how would a mutation impact vaccine development? Yeah, I mean, there always is the chance for mutation. Like I mentioned before, the first severe acute respiratory syndrome virus uh, um, did end up having mutations at, during the outbreak, and they were able to find those and identify those. And like I said, in some cases, they believe those made the virus uh, even more compatible with the, uh, the human uh, body. And so I, I would not rule out seeing that here. Um, how that affects therapeutics, um, you know, viruses can mute, uh, replicate at a very high rate over a small amount of time. So evolutionarily, they can change quite a bit in a short amount of time for our, uh, what we consider a small amount of time. And that's a very big concern for a lot of these therapeutics and vaccines. 
you know, it takes a year to develop one and prove its safety and everything. And the, the worst thing you want to do is develop one, get on the market and then find out it doesn't work against the virus anymore because the virus is mutated on you. And so there's different studies that you can kind of look at the propensity of these things to change. And, you know, usually when we go into a vaccine, usually they're trying to identify an antigen that seems to be conserved over time. So they want to focus on the conserved parts. What does that mean? That means the, in the case of uh, coronaviruses, they have what they call the spike protein. And it's three proteins that come together. Now there's portions of that protein that have shown high rates of uh, differences between different coronaviruses, and there's parts that haven't. And so, you know, usually the researchers try to focus on the more conserved parts because they've, at least evolutionists, evolutionists told us that those parts aren't likely to change as much as the others. And so those are some of the ways you safeguard that. But even when you're developing small molecule therapeutics, like, you know, in the case, let's go back to AZT, you know, AZ, uh, AIDS, some strains of AIDS are immune to AZT. It doesn't have any effect because they've had a mutation that renders it uh, uh, unworkable. And, you know, so that's definitely a concern. There's, again, ways you can test different viral targets to see if you get that resistance over time. And usually in any therapeutic development program, you at least have some component that's looking at that. Can you talk about how viruses mutate? How, what is the process through which uh, they do that? Well, you know, viruses, uh, you know, they have, as I mentioned before, this enzyme called the polymerase that uh, creates the viral genome. And those just don't have uh, very good proofreading, nor do they really need to. Um, you know, a virus isn't a living organism. It's really just a, co um, a collection of molecular machines. And as long as that polymerase, that polymerase spits out a thousand RNA strands, and one or two are, are defective, doesn't really affect the virus replicating a whole bunch. And so usually viruses have been seen to have, well, not necessarily would say faulty, but not the most high fidelity polymerases. And sometimes, as you mentioned, it goes to their evolutionary success because that means they can also change rapidly over time because different, uh, when it makes a genome, maybe it switches out a base pair by accident, that changes the function of a certain protein. And with any evolutionary kind of event, most of those mutations that are um, inserted into these viral genomes can be lethal for the virus and make it not work. But that's okay if you just have such an order of magnitude that one or two eventually work. So it's kind of an odds and statistics kind of uh, game the viruses are playing by having these faulty uh, polymerases. You know, yeah, sometimes I'll create viruses a lot of times that don't work or don't give me advantage, but then sometimes I do. And those ones that I do really can take off. Cohort studies in China have found that as many as one in seven patients hospitalized due to the SARS-CoV-2 acquire a secondary bacterial or viral infection. Earlier, we spoke with Dr. Neil Priest, who's the chief of emergency medicine at St. Mary's Hospital. And he, he stated that most infections were actually co-infections, where uh, SARS-CoV-2 might be the major infection, infecting agent, but there might be other bacteria or viral infections uh, along with it. Could you also elaborate on co-infections and um, the possibility or the need for general antibiotics biotics in the treatment of SARS-CoV-2? 
Yeah, I mean, with viruses like coronavirus, we've talked quite a bit about how the virus can suppress the immune system. And what that does is it really opens the door up to a lot of other pathogens that typically wouldn't infect you as readily that they now can because your immune system is already suppressed. So you're more susceptible to uh, getting um, co-infections. And, you know, in the case of antibiotics and things like that, there's not really used to once, if somebody walks in the door and says, I have COVID-19, there doesn't seem to be a real, you know, strong medical argument to prescribe antibiotics right at that moment in time. I mean, I'm sure many of you have gone to the doctor's office and had the flu or something or a cold, a viral cold. And, you know, the doctor basically gives you some, you know, uh, steroids, but, you know, they say, you ask, well, what about antibiotics? And say, well, you know, it really has to be, you know, 10 to 14 days after your cold, because then we know that it's probably not the cold giving you those symptoms, it's a bacterial infection. And so I wouldn't be surprised if you see some of those kind of treatment regimens coming out for this virus where people who haven't fully recovered after a period of time, they start prescribing antibiotics to uh, ward off secondary bacterial infections. But as a first line treatment, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence that it treats, you know, helps out with the virus yet. And so not something that you can rule out, but something that's probably gonna take a little extra time to develop that. Um, you know, that's why like in that French study, they kind of used an antiviral and an antibiotic. The antibiotic that they used in that particular study had shown some antiviral tendencies in cells. And so that's why that antibody was selected. But again, that study was really underpowered and really didn't, statistically, um, the statistics weren't really there to, to be informative on whether those treatments were actually working or not. Your team at the Center for Drug Discovery has worked a lot on tuberculosis or TB. And uh, that's pretty important because the World Health Organization has estimated that one in three people have latent tuberculosis and it remains one of the deadliest uh, diseases in the world. How would a previous tuberculosis infection or whooping cough or asthma or something like COPD affect someone's ability to uh, resist and survive a coronavirus infection? Do you expect a higher incidence rate in populations with uh, decreased lung capacity? For example, places with coal mining communities or heavily polluted cities or areas where there are high amounts of TB infections? Yeah, I mean, I would expect to see that, um, you know, That'd be an opinion at this point. I mean, I think there's only some anecdotal studies out there right now showing those correlations. But, you know, that's what makes these respiratory illnesses so, uh, so threatening is that they target the respiratory system. And that system is very vulnerable to a lot of the traumas that you talk about. Um, you know, in the case of like latent TB, you know, latent TB is that TB might be dormant, but then your body goes under a large amount of stress and then it comes out and starts having an active infection again. You know, if you have something like, you know, COVID-19, you know, you've already kind of damaged your lungs, have scar tissue in your lungs from some of these other diseases. And now COVID-19 comes along, your lungs really just aren't in the best shape to handle a respiratory illness. And that's also kind of why you see a mortality rate really high against people that have a lot of these, uh, you know, for unknown uh, preconditions is because, you know, they're, they're, they're just very vulnerable to having any adverse effect on a major system like your respiratory system. Um, you know, same with like smoking and stuff like that. You know, if they've, I think they've already taken and shown some images of what your lungs look like when you're infected with COVID-19 and it ravages them. You know, 
to a great extent really reduces the plasticity of them and everything. And, you know, we already know from, you know, smoking and things like that, that that does that also to the lungs. So probably, you know, like I said, it's more of an opinion at this point, but it's probably not a good thing, you know, to treat your lungs. I mean, really for individuals looking at the best way to kind of safeguard, prepare themselves for this, you know, virus is really to try to try to stay as healthy as you can, you know, exercise, you know, try to eat the right things and really just get your personal health up. Earlier, we also spoke with Kim Fowler, who is one of the IRB members for UGA, or she's a director. And she said that UGA did not currently have any human trials. Um, Would you be allowed to directly work on COVID-19, given that once you find a drug target, um, you would need a way to test in vivo because at UGA there are no human trials, or would you anticipate a human trial in the near future at UGA? Well, um, human trials are, are very organized, and this kind of comes down to how these systems are run. Now, um, a human trial at UGA is unlikely because we don't really have the infrastructure for human trials here. We partner, and we're part of a, what we call the CTSA, it's a clinical translational um, organization, in Georgia, and Georgia has one of these. And UGA partners with Emory as well as um, Georgia Tech and these and this inter, um, not Georgia Tech, I'm sorry, Augusta University. And we're part of this consortium that does have human trial testing capacity, but that capacity is down at Emory University at their hospital facility. So in the case of our researchers like, you know, Ted Ross or, you know, Eva Strouch or myself or, um, that are developing these treatments, really what would happen is once we feel that we have a, a therapeutic that looks very promising, we would move that into animal trials, most likely ferrets, which we do have the facilities here at Georgia. And I think we probably have some ferrets on site. And we also have the, the virus here on site in our laboratories uh, working on it. And so once those therapeutics would prove to be efficacious in the ferret animal model, that at that point in time, we would transition to a human trial. And like I said, most likely in our case, uh, one of the partners would probably be Emory University because they have the infrastructure to do that. So I think it's, it'd be a little, it's a, you know, sometimes a little difficult to understand that we're not doing human trials here in Athens, but, you know, we really don't have the research hospital infrastructure to make it a preferred place. I mean, we could do it, it's just not a preferred place. A better place to do it would be at Emory University. We have all the facilities there to carry out these um, these kind of uh, research projects. Do you expect to have uh, such a therapeutic uh, that is tested in ferrets soon? And why is it that ferrets are uh, used as human animal models? Sure. Uh, for us, I mean, we're probably thinking that we're probably four to five months out before we're wanting to go look at animals uh, with our therapeutics because there's a lot of tests to run uh, and, and safety things. And, you know, because whenever you develop some small therapeutic, it's it's a very complex process because if I put that therapeutic into you, I don't know what your liver is going to do to it. I don't know what your kidneys are going to do to it, you know, to modify it. And we have to find out all that safety information so that we don't, you know, and this is the same for any therapeutic, same as uh, remdesivir or any of those others, there's a lot of preclinical work that has to go into um, a compound and its formulation before you can move on to certain stages. Um, you know, why ferrets? Uh, because ferrets have been seen, were used, uh, 
were found to be a very good model in the original severe acute respiratory syndrome outbreak. They show disease symptoms the same as humans do. So that's why they were selected as a good model. Um, they have the, the ACE2, uh, ACE2 receptor that we have, you know, not exactly the same, but enough that the virus can interact with it. Uh, mice, regular wild type mice are very poor because they don't have that receptor. So that's why you can't get human coronavirus to infect mice. Of course, as that was the case in the um, early aughts and is now, there are mice out there that have been genetically modified to carry the correct receptor. And I know some in some places around the country, they're, they're standing up mouse colonies of those particular type of mice for in vivo studies. But most people are tending towards, of course, the ferret model because it's got a better track record in using wild type ferrets. And um, so that's kind of why ferrets end up being one of the preferred models. Um, you know, you have to look also at the expense, though. I mean, ferrets cost more than a mouse does. And, you know, that's why we just don't automatically go into non-human primates because non-human primates, you know, there's an ethics component and it's an expense component, you know, to run even a small study, you know, in non-human primates can easily run you a couple hundred thousand dollars, you know, and so if you're trying a lot of different treatments out, you know, and there might not even be enough human non-human primates out there to even facilitate the study. And so that's why we concentrate on animal models that show symptoms of human disease, you know, and it makes sense for us to be able to test a large array of treatments in those populations. Dr. Pegan, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, we understand you're really busy. If you could give some advice to everyone at home, what would your advice be? Yeah, like I said, I mean, I would really try, you know, the best thing you can do treatment out there is really make sure that you, you know, you're healthy as possible you know, try to wash your hands, you know, take prop, proper measures of social distancing uh, to protect yourself against this uh, a virus, uh, or at least flatten the curve long enough. And, you know, uh, just, you know, think really skeptically when uh, somebody offers, you know, it, um, you know, says a treatment and stuff, do some research to find out whether, you know, that that's really a, a worthwhile uh, uh, therapy to be looking at. And particularly, and this is really hard for everybody is that, you know, not everything on the internet is always correct. And so, you know, this is a real time that we really have to embrace our understanding of what scientists do and, you know, the, what a scientific uh, paper is versus a blog on the internet, because that can be a very dangerous uh, situation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Finch Podcast. If you're interested in being an underwriter, email us at thefinchpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like our work, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at The Finch Podcast. Next time on The Finch, we start from the beginning. The story of a city in central China, a flu from World War I, and the future of America for years to come.